United States highway system is certainly not without its infrastructural flaws, but it is quite a marvel in its expansiveness and in how its utility has far outstripped its original intended use. The official name of the U.S. system of highways is the United States Numbered Highway System. And it's composed of a huge network of smaller roads and larger highways, with each component numbered according to a grid system. East to west highways are generally even numbered, and the largest routes have numbers that end in zero. The lowest numbered highways are located up north, typically, where the majority of the initial upgrades to the system started. The north to south highways are odd numbered, and the major routes usually have numbers that end in 1. Highways with three-digit designations are typically offshoot routes from a larger two-digit main artery, though these offshoots don't necessarily directly connect with that larger route. US 60, for instance, has US 160, 260, 360, 460, and 560 as highway spurs. The main thoroughfare, US 60, heads east to west, while the spurs fork off into Missouri, Oklahoma, Texas, and the latter two into New Mexico. Interestingly, and strangely, the US 101 highway is considered to be a two-digit route, with the first digit being 10. In the years since the initial designations of these roads, of course, Many main arteries and minor spurs have been shut down, resulting in a system that is still organized in the broad sense, but often confusing when you get reductive down to the smaller regional level. This, at least in theory, rational system of highways was initially proposed in 1925, and after a good deal of deliberation and changes, it was finally approved at the end of 1926. The early version of the system, mostly formalized and named according to that aforementioned grid system, existing roads, which made traversing them a whole lot easier, despite the many, many tangles and offshoots that existed at the time, because up until that point there had been no central, federal organization of these state-level roads. But three decades later, in 1956, The interstate highway system was formed, and many of these old country road-based routes were replaced with what we now think of when we think of highways. The larger, separate, multi-lane concrete roads that allow for swift passage of traffic through an area and easy connection to major streets if you choose to offload into a nearby city. From 1956 onward, after the passing of the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956, the U.S. went on a building spree, in some cases upgrading older, smaller, rational highways, but in many cases replacing them outright, or building larger, more modern freeways near them, only to replace 
those smaller original roads later. There are still a few regions, like the US 101 stretch between Los Angeles and San Francisco, that are not served by the larger interstate highways body, but these are few and far between. The vast majority of these systems fall under that larger federal jurisdiction. The impact of these arterial systems of transportation cannot be overstated, and that applies for many different aspects of how the United States evolved and what it looks like today. These highway systems played a massive role in the shape of what the country looks like now. Part of the rationale for building this system was to ensure that in the event of a war and for general national defense, we could easily move personnel and weaponry from coast to coast without having to rely on locally maintained unpaved country roads of varying quality to get there. The widespread availability of these roads also ensured that cars had a huge advantage over other methods of transportation early on, especially when compared to other major economies that had come of age before the advent of the combustion engine. European cities had to be retrofitted to account for the car, while many U.S. cities were built with the car in mind and emerged in their modern iterations with the car at the center of business and governance and the lifestyles of the citizens who lived there. Freeways have also been a source of major contention socially because of their bulk, because of their expense, and because of what they often represent for a certain portion of society. There's an increasingly popular movement in the U.S. right now that revolves around removing freeways. Part of the argument for this removal stems from the urban design perspective, which says that freeways very often create blights and uneconomically use the land upon which they're built. What's more, they often cut directly through neighborhoods, which divides those areas and creates all kinds of infrastructural weaknesses and economic downsides, while also limiting the ability for non-car transportation options, particularly for people who exist on one side or the other of this very often uncrossable barrier in the middle of their city. Another more specific and far more targeted consequence of these highway systems is that historically they've been used to eliminate slum areas from cities. The laws which allow politicians and developers to appropriate land for freeways can be leveraged as a tool to claim areas that are not economically successful or which are full of people they would like to see kicked out of the city. And this has served to amplify the problems of suburbanization, which I've covered in a past episode, and the many downsides that stem from that type of dissemination of residents and the specialization of certain types of land rather than the melding of them and the urbanization of them. People are cloistering now in far-flung residential areas, driving not through but above and removed from troubled areas that have been ignored or even actively attacked by those who are in charge. And the people who are able to traverse these sequestered freeways 
then arrive at work or at the mall or at a hip downtown district that has recently been appropriated by developers, which was probably a former slum that had become gentrified, expelling its former residents to areas on the wrong side of those impassable freeways. And these people arrive in these areas not seeing and experiencing firsthand what is happening to certain parts of their cities and what is happening to the people who live there as a result of these divisions and of these great, big, and to them quite useless pieces of infrastructure that are keeping them from having the quality of life that they might otherwise have if they were more integrated with the rest of their city. This is a radical simplification of the situation, of course, but it's a broad strokes outline of why, especially lately, highways have become very politicized spaces. Groups like Black Lives Matter have been targeting freeways for protests because these are spaces that were, in some cases, created as acts of aggression against minority groups and which stand as barriers between groups that would otherwise intermingle in a more well-constructed urban environment. And these are spaces that allow many of us to move from pleasant place to pleasant place blissfully unaware or at least separated from the uncomfortable realities that exist just underneath or on the far side of the arterial connections that we so casually and thoughtlessly make use of. And that leads into what I want to talk about today. Not highways, but protests. And why they happen, what they represent, whether or not they actually accomplish anything and what kind of role they're likely to play in the coming years. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Let's Know Things is a listener-supported program. That means it is brought to you by people like you. If you go to letsknowthings.com and click on the Contribute page, you will find an array of different options in terms of how you might contribute to the continued production of this show. Everything from PayPaling over a dollar an episode to setting up a monthly payment to simply sharing it with a friend or leaving a review on iTunes. These are all very, very helpful methods of ensuring that I'm able to continue to put in the time to produce this show each week. And I appreciate very much each and every contribution, whatever shape it might take. A huge thanks to everyone who has already contributed, and a thank you in advance if you are considering doing so. This episode is also brought to you by Audible. Audible is the world's largest collection of audio books. And if you go to audibletrial.com LKT, In addition to helping support the show, you will receive a free month of Audible and an audiobook of your choice from their collection. You are free to keep that audiobook whether or not you stick with them past that first month. But either way, it's a great way to get a free book and to check out this audiobook thing if you have not given it a try quite yet. And stay tuned till the end of the episode if you don't already have a book in mind. I will give a book recommendation for you to consider. And this episode is brought to you by HostGator. HostGator is the hosting company that I use for all of my online publication needs. If you go to hostgator.com LKT, 
you will receive a special discount that they provide for listeners of Let's Know Things. All right, let's get back to the show. Part of why I wanted to discuss this particular topic, that of protests, is that I've never really fully understood the act of protesting, as in staging a formal public get-together where you make your distaste for something known and typically hope to see change happen as a result of that act. I understand it intellectually, in a way, for certain types of change and in certain circumstances, but it's never been something that has particularly appealed to me, and it's never seemed like the best option, or at least in modern times to me, has never seemed like the best option, the best way to actually make change happen. I do understand that there are historical circumstances that seem to prove otherwise, and that many famous turning points, especially when it comes to human rights, seem to pivot on the strength of large-scale protests. But I've also long felt that we have so many other means of achieving these same goals that the protest unto itself isn't really the best option, at least not in solitude, perhaps as part of a larger whole, then a protest becomes an excellent PR effort. It becomes good public relations. Very often, though, I see these protests occurring with the best of intentions, absolutely. And they include a whole lot of passion and effort, and in many cases, a great deal of bravery by the people involved. But it still seems like something that is a non-optimal way to achieve the intended end. And so that's the bias that I walk into this topic with. And having done more research on the topic, I'm not in entirely convinced that I'm wrong, but I do think that there's more depth to the issue that I hadn't considered before, so I'm definitely not absolutely right either, as tends to be the case with most things. Protests in their many shapes and scales are definitely complex mechanisms that do typically take place within a larger movement, whether or not we actually see the other moves that are being made publicly. But they also seem to have a great deal of potential as catalysts and as milestones, in addition to being potentially excellent sources of public relations wins for a cause. Though I will note, it does seem that they can also be the opposite, quite negative PR catastrophes, if not conducted correctly or if staged in the wrong situations or even under the wrong government. And so to start this conversation, I want to unspool three different articles that approach this topic from three different angles. One is from panampost.com, and it's entitled, Despite Government Obstacles, Over a Million Venezuelans March on Caracas. The second is from NPR, and it's entitled, In China... Death of a Young College Grad Sparks Protest from Fellow Alumni. And the third is from the Washington Post, and it's entitled, Yale's President Responds to Protesters' Demands, Announces New Initiatives to Ease Racial Tension. And so you can probably tell already just from those titles that these are three radically different 
types of protest and in three radically different situations as well. But I think these three different facets, though they don't tell the entire story because there are millions of different facets of this and every topic, they also paint a fairly broad picture from which we can discern a whole lot that we might not otherwise see just from looking at one or two different topics. And so the first piece about the protests that have been happening over the past year or so in Venezuela shows what such efforts look like under an authoritarian government, one that works something like Russia's government under Putin. That is, it's a clear dictatorship by any metric, but it still goes through the motions to make things look like a democracy so that they can then claim that they are a liberal democracy and therefore have the same moral superiority that is claimed by actual liberal democracies throughout the world. So they hold elections, though everyone already knows the outcome ahead of time, and the opposition candidates are very often jailed or killed or set up to look like criminals by the current in-power party. They have police, but those police are just as likely to operate as like a mafia as they are to protect anyone. In Venezuela recently, there was a small crackdown on a group of police who were trafficking government-purchased food during a famine that they were meant to distribute for free, but they were instead selling it to people. And so this article is about a massive protest that was conducted back on September 1st of 2016. And this protest was notable because something like 3% of the entire country of Venezuela came out to protest, demanding a recall vote that would pull President Nicolas Maduro from office. It's also notable as an example of how a crypto-authoritarian government can easily diffuse such a protest. Maduro's party set up roadblocks. They shut down trains that led into the capital city of Caracas, where the protest was to take place. They set up a massive number of checkpoints to pat down and screen anyone who wished to attend. And then, once the crowd, which had already been filtered and hindered as much as they could possibly justify filtering and hindering them, once they arrived and organized, the president announced that their country was very clearly great because, look, they allow their people to protest. He didn't address any of their problems. And the opposition actually failed to demand his ouster the way that they said they would because they had already been so easily diffused. Their momentum was killed by the judo move that the president pulled in which he legitimized their protest and said, yeah, way to go. Look, we're a democracy. Look, people can protest. We didn't even kill anybody. But in doing so, he also removed the imperative to address any of the issues that they were protesting in the first place. Now, a new set of protests, which descended into riots, which is usually the term applied to protests that get violent and in which stuff is destroyed, though it is also sometimes used in a very racially tinged, racially motivated way in some places, including the U.S. But this new set of protests included police officers being killed and protesters being killed and a whole lot of looting. And this started up a month after this diffused protest took place. So this new one took place in October of 2016. At that point, because of the 
violence that was occurring, the Vatican offered to come in and deliberate between the parties and act as a mediator. And the result has been a few months of relative calm during the latter months of 2016, even amidst a looming famine in the country. But as I record this, there seems to be another storm front rolling in that is set to hit probably the first half of January 2017. So something might have already happened by the time this hits the airwaves. Maduro was convinced to allow some political prisoners to go free, including a former candidate that had run against him, I believe back in 2006. But at the same time, he also announced with only a 72-hour warning, so three days warning, that the country's largest and most used currency note, the 100 Bolivar note, would no longer be legal to use as currency. It would no longer be legal tender. So just imagine if in the United States they, with three days notice, told you that no $20 bills would be accepted anymore and that they would be replaced at some point by different bills. It would be somewhat alarming and kind of a dramatic move for a lot of different reasons. And that's essentially what happened in Venezuela during this downtime that the Vatican was mediating. The confluence of these issues almost assure that 2017 will be welcomed in Venezuela with new protests and protesters. And as I mentioned, there will probably already be new news about this that I will try to mention in the show notes by the time this episode goes live. But suffice to say for now that this is an emerging story, at least in part, because the protests that were meant to turn the tide and take the country in a new direction, and which included something like 3% of the entire population of the nation, failed to have any discernible impact in that direction. Now, the second piece about the Chinese student who died in police custody speaks to how protest emerges in societies that have in recent history been quite effective at stamping out at least the most obvious signs of non-alignment with government mandate, but which have also been successful enough economically to have raised a new generation that's just coming of age of essentially middle-class intellectuals. This creates an interesting and potentially volatile situation. The Chinese government is authoritarian, but unlike rule under a dictator, there are many different personalities involved in this government. And over the past decade in particular, there have been indications of push-pull events happening behind closed doors, and the vibrations from these events have been felt outside their inner sanctum from time to time, and reported on with great interest by international news because it tells us something about what happens behind closed doors, and we don't have much indication of what happens there otherwise. So that combined with the coming of age of a particularly wealthy and particularly well-educated young city-dwelling Chinese populace means that if this new now coming-of-age group sees an act by the government that they perceive to be threatening to them and people with their relative status, as opposed to just other people who are uneducated or lower economic class, that it's easier to excuse because it's not targeting you and your group, then it starts to raise some hackles. They start to put up their antenna 
And this was the case with this student who was killed by the police. He was maybe killed accidentally. He was maybe killed intentionally because of his environmentalism work. But these students suddenly stopped and took notice because they realized that this was not one of these lower class people or one of these people that we don't hear about or have to care about. This is somebody just like us that was killed in police custody. This might be something we have to worry about. And interestingly, this student who was killed was suspected of being killed after visiting a prostitute at a massage parlor. And so when the police approached him, they said, he supposedly fought back against them. And then they treated him in such a way that he ended up dead shortly after that interaction. Prostitution is technically illegal in China, but is usually not acted upon. That's a law that's not typically enforced with any great motivation. So there's a chance that even if the cops indeed were not trying to kill this student for his environmentalism work, which often brings him into conflict with the ruling party, they may have been trying to catch him with his pants down, figuratively, but maybe also literally. The enforcement of typically under-enforced laws helps keep protesters in check under these sorts of circumstances. It's a move that's not restricted to China and similar governments. It's incredibly convenient to be able to leave some of these laws unenforced so that when you need to bring someone in or when you need to prove that somebody is a criminal and not somebody who should be respected by people who might otherwise take their side against the government, you can say, hey, look, he visited prostitutes, or hey, look, he smoked pot, things of that nature. This is something that's done within the US and within European nations as well. So this is not a purely Chinese strategy. And it's something that often allows governments to prevent certain types of demonstrations or gatherings or alleged hooliganism, even when these things would typically be protected under the auspices of freedom of speech under any other circumstance. Having these types of laws in effect means that if there is a protest taking place and somebody at that protest is smoking pot, you can then shut down the protest and use drug enforcement laws as an excuse to do so. And so again, another interesting example of what happens when protests and protestable effects come into conflict with governments and their ability to enforce around the issue, but then also what they sometimes do to cause these protests to happen in the first place, particularly in places where protests don't have a very good record of success. Finally, the third article, which is about Yale's president responding to student concerns about racial tensions at the school, brings up another interesting side to the story of modern protests, and that is its role within educational institutions. Yale is not the only university in the U.S. seeing a large number of protests each school year, and increasingly so. And this trend seems to have an array of different causes. First, because we are more capable of communicating with each other via social media, texting, and things like that, we are also more capable of putting together organized movements, including protests, and sometimes at a moment's notice than ever before. And students in particular who have 
a latent understanding of these technologies and are on them all the time anyway have a natural advantage in this type of organization. Second, because we are more aware of each other and of groups outside our own than ever before, we're also more likely to care in favor or against these things that other people care about rather than just being mixed up in our own concerns all the time. And third, because many people growing up in developed nations today are essentially born with smartphones in their hands, they also grow up online. A lot of these people who are coming of age today, however, are also growing up within information bubbles. Studies have shown that a lot of otherwise very savvy digital natives are also quite terrible at discerning advertorials, that is, editorials that are written at the behest of advertisers and are essentially advertisements disguised as opinion pieces or news articles. They are terrible at discerning those from real news articles. And these students have little reason to believe that they're getting their information and sharing their opinions within an information bubble. Part of the nature of being inside an information bubble is that you don't really know that you are inside of one. You are so well secluded and your opinions are so well supported by everything else within that bubble. And so these bubbles are strengthened and amplified by algorithms, and they're reinforced by the social networks that allow students to care about things outside of their own concerns, but it also exposes them to a steady stream of information about causes that they might resonate with. And so this increased awareness, but also the increased polarity of ideologies can lead to a dramatic increase in activism and perhaps other activities alongside general activism, like, say, the participation in protests. In some recent well-publicized episodes of protests that have happened on American campuses, students have been criticized for making sometimes ridiculous-seeming demands or for stirring up problems where no problems exist. In a lot of cases, I think, that latter statement seems like something you say if, for example, you are white and the other person is black and they are telling you that race has become an issue at the school and you tell them that it has not because you've never directly experienced racism. It's certainly possible that some of these people who are protesting or making demands are just stirring up trouble because they think it's fun or because they want the prestige or attention that comes with such a thing, such an act. But it seems far more likely, in most cases at least, that there actually is some kind of problem, and that those who are not a target of it do not see it as a problem for obvious reasons. But interestingly, these at-school protests seemed for a while, regardless of their subject matter, to be quite effective. There were a lot of people stepping down and being fired and a lot of things being changed. But then after a year or two of that, there were fewer success stories and they started to have less impact as time went by. And part of the reason for this, I think, based on this article and a few others that I will link to in the show notes, might be that schools are just getting better at starting and maintaining dialogues with their student body before or right after things reach a boiling point. 
And in cases where students actually want to get something done, they actually want to change something rather than just trying to get attention, it seems likely that those students will sit down and talk to someone who can actually make those things happen rather than simply banging the drum until something hopefully happens maybe in some other way by some other mechanism. It's, of course, a possibility that this is just wishful thinking on my part and that I'm reading too much into a handful of isolated news events and that the real story is that student protests are now being effectively quashed in their infancy, that the students in charge are being threatened or booted before they can raise a groundswell or maybe there are suddenly so many protests in the news that journalists got bored of covering them and readers got bored of reading about them, and the concept of protesting lost its effectiveness for the cause, or lost its luster in the eyes of the students who might otherwise be protesting. But whatever the case might be, it's notable, I think, that in most cases, protests in the United States and most other liberal democracies, that, that's not liberal as in liberal as a political term, within a democracy, but a liberal democracy as in the type of government we have. In the U.S. and other liberal democracies around the world, protests are not just allowed, they're often quite respectable in a way, because they're a pushback against the establishment and a public declaration that something is wrong. And although the man sometimes stomps their jackbooted thugs in to harass the protesters, Such instances are actually very rare. They're very few and far between. We see far more of those types of situations in the news than we see the peaceful, less violently confrontational ones. But the reason we see them when they happen is that they're so unusual. That's the type of thing that they tend to put on the news when a protest goes well and everybody is peaceful and calm and comes to a peaceful agreement. That is not something that tends to make for very good television. And so thankfully, the majority of the time, even when protests are not as effective as the protesters might like, they do not become violent and nobody dies. This is not always the case, but it is the case the vast majority of the time, within liberal democratic governments anyway. But all of that doesn't directly answer the question that I had in mind when I initially decided to cover this topic for this episode, and that is, are protests actually useful? Do they actually accomplish anything, especially if there's no violence involved? It seems like those being protested against typically have very little to fear from a group of people shouting loudly at them and waving disparaging signs. What is the value proposition? for protesters in those cases, but also what is the value proposition for the people being protested against to actually engage with them? Is protest only a valuable exercise when the whole world is watching? There was a piece in The Atlantic back in 2004 that asked the same question. This piece was called, Why Street Protests Don't Work. Here's a quick quote from that piece. Quote, Aerial photos of the anti-government marches routinely show an intimidating sea of people furiously demanding change. And yet, it is surprising how little these crowds achieve 
The fervent political energy on the ground is hugely disproportionate to the practical results of these demonstrations. Notable exceptions, of course, exist in Egypt, Tunisia, and Ukraine. Street protests actually contributed to the overthrow of the government. But most massive rallies fail to create significant changes in politics or public policies. End quote. It's remarkably difficult to find real stats on the subject of successful and unsuccessful protests, particularly because their definition of what success means in each case is murky and often changes, and the numbers involved, like how many people showed up to protest, are rarely documented in an organized empirical fashion. But there was a TEDx talk and a subsequent flurry of articles, including one by the Washington Post, which I will link to in the show notes, back in 2013, on what these statistics say about violent versus nonviolent protests. And it would seem that, according to this data, in attempts to overthrow one's government, if you can peacefully rally about 3.5% of the governed citizens, you stand a pretty dang good chance of knocking a dictator out of power. Political scientist Erica Chenoweth was the speaker giving that talk, and it's her data that we are using here. And that data says that not only are nonviolent protests more likely to lead to revolution in most cases, the difference in likelihood between nonviolent and violent protests has skyrocketed in the past two decades, which is to say that it is increasingly more likely that a peaceful protest will succeed given the proper numbers that 3.5% of the population protesting that I mentioned, and increasingly less likely that a violent protest will succeed if the protests have otherwise similar properties. Part of this may be that it is much easier to justify violent crackdowns against violent protesters. If someone in your group starts to shoot at the police, chances are all they've done is justify the full use of police force against not just the shooter, but everyone involved in the protest. There's also some evidence that when violence erupts within protests, it sometimes increases the perceived distance between the people doing the protesting and the people who are back at home sitting in front of their computer or seeing this on TV or seeing it happen in passing while driving by. It's much easier in most cases, I think, to dismiss any idea, including ideas that are being presented by protesters, even if they are good ideas when they are attached to or presented by or presented alongside the wrong spokespeople. And more often than not, being a violent person means that you are the wrong spokesperson to reach most demographics. There has been one major outlier, protest success, a peaceful protest that happened just recently, the Dakota Access Pipeline protests, that I was frankly shocked that it succeeded. Not because I think the ideas involved were bad in any way, but because I assumed the powers that were on the other side that were being faced by the protesters, namely a bunch of well-established politicians in very conservative states and the fossil fuel lobby 
I felt that they would be unstoppable and that they would probably not care at all that there were protesters trying to stand in their way. I also thought that this protest was unlikely to succeed because one, many of the people involved were Native Americans whose protests are very often ignored by even very well-meaning people in publications. And two, most of the pipeline from North Dakota to Southern Illinois was already built. The pipeline still needed to cross under the Missouri River, however, and that is where the Standing Rock tribe took their stand. And their elder, LaDonna Brave Bull Allard, set up a camp, and that camp was eventually housing thousands of people who'd come out to support the protest. And so the tale of the Dakota Access Pipeline protest is notable because it represents a very modern version of past peaceful protests that managed to achieve scale. And it did so not just by rallying people online, but also encouraging action. In this case, that action included sending resources like money and food, and even just showing up bodily to be there at the camp to be present at an uncomfortable standoff during which local police and hired private security were repeatedly attacking the protesters with smoke bombs and rubber bullets and attack dogs and firing ice-cold water at them in the dead of winter. Some of the imagery that came out as a result of these attacks went viral, which only amplified support for the protesters, even among people who didn't really understand what the protest was about. Which again, goes to show why peaceful protests tend to evoke empathy, while those who do violence tend to become the other quite quickly. They become the oppressive party, while those being attacked, regardless of whether we even know what it is that they're protesting, become people like us in the minds of people who are watching these videos and hearing these stories. This is true only as long as these events take place in places with an uncensored press, I should mention. These sorts of things happen all the time under repressive regimes, and very often the news coverage the next day portrays the victims as the attackers, and those who are firing the rubber bullets and sicking the attack dogs on people as the victims of criminal action. So what does this instance represent? What are we to make of this upset? Because on one side, we had groups that have all the power. We have well-entrenched politicians and well-lobbied, well-funded, incredibly powerful fossil fuel industry insiders. And on the other side, we have a traditionally and contemporarily repressed group that has rallied the attention of a large number of people on the internet, essentially, but not a large number in the grand context of the space in which it's taking place. It wasn't 3.5% of the population of the United States. It was a few thousand people with a whole lot of well-wishers clicking and liking things on the internet. Something of this scale against that type of powerful opposition is incredibly unlikely to succeed, and that it did succeed even though the results of that success may now in the future be under threat for a series of different reasons. That's fairly remarkable. The historical examples of protests, of Gandhi, of Martin Luther King Jr., of the Vietnam War protests, these all make sense to me. At the same time, 
I can't help but wonder if this time and energy that's invested in most modern protests couldn't be better spent elsewhere. Wouldn't it be easier to unify that energy and those resources behind a collection of politicians who could instigate change from the inside? Wouldn't it be better if the young people who have these ideals that they believe in went into politics instead and changed the system to suit their worldview? Or hell, what if they simply went into business and earned a bunch of money and prestige and made use of the flawed system that is already in place in order to push their own agendas? I think the numbers, if there were reliable numbers, might back me up on that. And I also think that pragmatically playing the game, whatever the game happens to be, whether it's politics or economics or even some semblance of violence, depending on where it is that you're living and what game you're playing, that makes a lot more sense in places where those in power are not as easy to shame as they are within the liberal democracies of the West. There's an increasing chance that getting dirt on a high-up politician in China might actually accomplish something. It might make some waves, but only because their political opponents would make use of that information to further their own agendas. In the U.S., though, we still have sufficient checks and balances in place and enough power in the hands of the general citizenry and the lower-rung officials that even the highest of the high can be toppled if they are found to be enmeshed in big enough scandals. This ability to punch above our weight class is what allows protests to work better in these sorts of places than in other places. Even though it may seem like a waste of time and effort through some lenses to protest, because those same resources could potentially be channeled in other directions, like direct politics and business, as I mentioned, to gain influence in that way. But it's also one of the few situations and one of the few environments in which very low-grade, low-skill, low-investment effort can be melded together with a little bit of higher-end skill and commitment, like that of the leaders of these protests. And then that great big voice, that great big vibration and rumble caused by all those little voices melded together can actually cause a large inconvenience and a ruckus that gets the attention of even very powerful people, much more than would be possible in authoritarian states. It's possible that a dedicated and skilled person could work their way up the political ranks and change things directly after a few decades of focused effort. But it's also possible, if nowhere near as certain, I should note, that a few thousand people or a few million people with a few months to spare could achieve the same in a much shorter period of time and without dedicating their entire existence to one particular goal. They dedicate a few months and they spread the word and they share the right articles on Facebook. And by participating as part of that larger unit, they maybe accomplish what one politician dedicating their entire life to the problem might accomplish in several decades. I also think it's worth noting that a lot of people don't only protest to get things done because they actually think the protest will accomplish anything. A lot of people protest because it serves as a social signal to others. It shows other people what they believe. 
This is important to know because it can help draw people in to your own movement should you choose to start one. If you are able to amplify this effect and help them feel like they are part of something, you are more likely to pull people into a movement. But it also helps explain to some degree why we might not always choose the rationally optimal solution to solving a problem when the solution doesn't jive with our self-perception or how we think it might make us seem to our peer group. Protesting as a credibility metric then explains the propensity we have toward so-called clicktivism and slacktivism, in which people are ostensibly participating in certain movements and showing what they believe in, but the only action they're actually taking is liking things on Facebook and maybe signing their digital name to a petition online. Yes, there is a small chance that sharing or liking something on social media will eventually lead to some kind of practical change, but it is immensely unlikely. What we do accomplish by sharing petitions and liking political YouTube videos, however, is associating ourselves with particular movements and ideologies. We show people what we like by peacocking our ideologies and what we support and how involved and engaged we are. This isn't a latently harmful thing, except that it does tend to give us the same buzz, that same pulse of reward chemicals in our brains that actually doing something tends to give us. And so if we were to take part in a protest or participate in the political system by voting, we might get a sense of accomplishment from doing something. But these other actions, this clicking on things and typing our name, tends to give us that same feeling. Look, I accomplished something. Look, I did something. Look, I'm trying to make the world a better place. And so in that way, we are less biologically incentivized to participate. And that can actually be a harmful thing in situations when we are exactly the people who need to be out there making a ruckus and participating in other more effective action-based ways. Now, I still don't believe that blocking highways and holding signs is the only way to instigate change. I don't even believe it's the best way in most cases. In free societies in particular, there are so many different ways to garner attention and to gain popular support. And we still, for the time being at least, hopefully that remains the case, have a ruling class that can actually be ousted without violence and can't make it into power in the first place if a sufficient number of individual citizens do not believe that they should be there and make that known in a measurable way. That is pretty damn amazing, especially compared to the way things work in many places around the world and have worked around the world for much of human history. It's just amazing, and it's kind of remarkable that it even happened, much less that it still works decently well much of the time today. Some of this power that we hold actually diminishes, though, when we convince ourselves that not taking action is better than taking action. What I mean by that is not voting as a protest against the system or not participating in the economic system that we have because we do not believe in the way that capitalism works within this country. When we tell ourselves that stepping outside of this system is an act of protest and therefore could be effective against the system, we very often shoot ourselves in the foot because we are losing the abilities that that very system grants us to correct it from the inside. There are good arguments to be made that if you are an idealist about this particular system, that the only 
legit response to that system is not to participate, to step outside of it. That participating is tacit support for that system. I would argue that a more pragmatic and less cynical standpoint would be to use that system to your advantage and then rebuild it from the inside out into something better. If you do not respect that system, then you should have no problem learning how it operates and then playing pretend until you get into a place where you can wield the influence that you have garnered by playing pretend to make a change to it. But maybe that's part of why protesters do what they do as well. Throwing stones from the inside requires taking the time to get inside and sullying yourself to a certain degree. It requires bending and pretending to be something that you're not and stepping inside of a system that you don't believe in. Protesting in whatever shape it might take allows for a purity of ideals, even if it strips you of some of your powers that you might otherwise have to make change. You may sacrifice for that purity, but the purity remains, while most other options require a person to negotiate away from those ideals sometimes, even if that negotiation and loss of idealism in action is in the name of a greater victory later on. It's this very nature, I think, that makes protests seem so quixotic to some, while they seem so obviously valuable and meaningful to others. One last thing I would say as a protest skeptic is that these are all things worth remembering, I think. And it's worth remembering the next time you see an annoying protester on the side of the road waving a sign, blocking public transit, making you miss an appointment or be late to work, is that these are people who, regardless of their methods, care about something. And even if you disagree with them, they are taking direct action. And they are making use of an historically rare right that we have to spread awareness about this issue that they care passionately about. Are they necessarily doing it in the right way, with right being defined as the most direct and likely to succeed fashion? Perhaps not. Perhaps they're doing more shouting and clanging of pots and pans and enjoying the adventure of it all than they are changing anything. But the world is full of injustices and disagreements and quibbles and crimes. I think we could certainly do worse than to engage in some concrete way with the many systemic issues that surround us by using whatever tools we're fortunate to have available and to discover what we might build with them. This episode and every episode of Let's Know Things is brought to you by its wonderful listeners. If you go to letsknowthings.com, you will find an array of different ways that you can contribute to the show, should you choose to do so. Leaving a review on iTunes is a really quick and easy way to help support the show, but you can also contribute a buck an episode or set up some kind of monthly payment. Simply tell a friend or tell your social network about it. All of these things are very much appreciated. Thank you so much to everyone who has already contributed, and thank you in advance if you are considering doing so in the future. Another good way to support the show is to check out our sponsors. One such sponsor is Audible. I am a great lover of books, and I have become, over the last couple of years, a great lover of audiobooks as well. It's an excellent format to 
learn and engage and enjoy books in a slightly different way, I've found. And I tend to prefer audiobooks for nonfiction, though I know a lot of people who love to take in fiction this way as well, particularly on long trips where your eyes might be otherwise occupied, but you still want to beam those wonderful stories directly into your brain. But if you're still an audiobook skeptic, or if you've been meaning to give it a shot, there is an easy and free way to do that. Pop over to audibletrial.com LKT, and you will receive a free month of Audible and a free audiobook of your choice. If you do not already have a book on your pile of must-reads that you want to pick up using this credit, might I suggest The Song Machine, subtitle Inside the Hit Factory by John Seabrook. This is a book that I just finished listening to, and it's utterly fascinating. This is a book essentially about the creation of pop music, and that means in the historical sense, but also the literal creation of these songs, which are very seldom written by the people who perform them. They are usually put together by a group of people, and they use algorithms and soft AI, and they use libraries full of every other hit song ever to come up with things that become addictive. And the marketing of these groups is fascinating. It reminds me, in a way, of another book that I recommended on a past episode, I believe, called Console Wars, which was about the Nintendo-Sega face-off of the 80s and 90s. This book talks about the Backstreet Boys in sync Britney Spears era of pop music. And it was just this huge flashback as somebody who has never been a huge pop fan, but still remembers the cultural meaning of these groups. Getting the story behind these characters is just remarkable. One of the people who owned both the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC also owned a Zeppelin company. It's just this incredibly convoluted collection of characters and stories that ends up making for a very informative and interesting and fun book. That is The Song Machine by John Seabrook. You can pick it up at your local library, local indie bookstore, or get it on your Kobo, your Kindle, or you can use that free Audible credit to get the audiobook version, like I did, if you go to audibletrial.com LKT. This episode is also brought to you by HostGator. HostGator is the service that I use to host all of my websites, everything from my blog, Exile Lifestyle, to letsnotethings.com. It is very easy to use if you are a newbie to the online world and just want to build your first website, but it also has all kinds of pro tools for folks who want to build their own infrastructure and manipulate all the little tiny teensy knobs and switches. If you go to hostgator.com LKT, not only will you be supporting the show, but you will also receive a special discount for Let's Know Things listeners. That's hostgator.com LKT. You can find out more about me and the books that I have written at colin.io. My blog is exilelifestyle.com. And the show notes for this episode and every episode can be found at letsnotethings.com. You can find the show's social media accounts at Let's Know Things on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And you can find me, Colin Wright, personally, pretty much everywhere on social media at Colin is my name. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.